Welcome to the Rock Health Podcast, where we talk to investors, entrepreneurs, and healthcare stakeholders to get an inside take on the biggest trends in digital health. This podcast is brought to you by the, the Rock, Rock Health, health team. team. Join us and build something useful. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Erin Broadwin. I'm a health tech reporter at Stat News, and I'm pleased to be joined by three of the people who are building a new front door to healthcare. Now, normally, I would start this session off by greeting you all warmly and asking how you're doing, hearing raucous applause, but since we obviously can't do that in these times, I will start with myself and say I'm excited to be here and uh, looking forward to what we're about to chat about. So also, since this year's Rock Health Summit is fully virtual, just want to give a reminder to folks who are about to start using Slack. We're using that to take audience questions, and you can also do all of your dialoguing and networking on the Slack platform. So uh, from there, you can, you can, as I said, send, send in questions for our panelists. You can answer polls and, of course, network. So let's get right to it. Marcus, everyone knows about Walmart. I would imagine a lot of folks who are tuning in today have been to one, perhaps recently. A couple of years ago, you made a big bet with physical clinics. And I wonder, given the pandemic, given everything going on, given that we're doing this session right now virtually, are there elements of that in-person, foot-traffic-driven strategy that you are rethinking? I don't know that we're actually rethinking it. I think in many ways, the original strategy wasn't one for us about physical sites of care. It was actually about delivering what we call an omni-channel experience in healthcare. What we believe is that people are struggling to get the care at the moment, that they can't afford it, that they can't conveniently access it, that it's too complex. And that what that means is it's not about one channel or the other. It is actually about uh, creating an experience and an environment in which you give consumers multiple ways in which they can engage care and actually allow them to kind of choose their own adventure in many ways. And so what I would say is it's not sort of changing our perspective on the need for these physical sites of care. I just believe in the need for the creation of better, stronger, more compelling omnichannel experiences for consumers. And so you know, and what I will say on the on the back end is even with COVID, what we've actually seen is particularly here recently, a number of people who they're, the way they want to engage is not through a telehealth channel or not through a digital channel. They crave or desire in-person interaction. And so many of these are individuals who are coming in that maybe had, you know, were getting care from someone else and know that now that we're open, uh, they can come see us. But no, it's not, you know, again, not so much that it's changed our strategy. I think it's reinforced our belief that there are going to be other moments like this and that what is fundamentally lacking is that is that kind of omnichannel experience that allows people to get what they need in the way they want it in that moment at a price they can afford. So I think Got it. in some ways COVID was reinforcing. Mm. So it sounds like you're seeing some early results. Are there any other results you can share? You know, yeah, I think I think where we what we probably have seen is that, you know, more than anything, probably what COVID has driven is it's sort of reinforced or I would say even made kind of stronger some of the services needs that we had entered with that I think weren't sort of entirely obvious. So we, we placed a big bet, mm. for example, particular? on behavioral health, uh, mm. behavioral health services, I'd say specifically. You know, I think there's been a lot of talk certainly over the years about the need, the pervasive need for mental health services at the community level. But I think COVID just massively reinforced that. And I think almost all of us can say, we can raise our hands and say our level of stress, angst has increased. Many of us feel much more depressed. You know, you're sort of stuck at home. And so that's probably a good example of one area in which 
digital means of care have actually been important. So we actually pivoted very quickly to, to our behavioral health services being accessible via telehealth. And what we saw was no change in the consumer reaction. As you look at things like net promoter score and how people rated their experience, the experience they had digitally was almost equal to what they had in person. And so that I think that, again, if you do it well, it shows that these, these multiple channels can be successful. Got it. So you've got both elements, some in person, some virtual. So Daniel, Best Buy's healthcare strategy has, as I've, I've written about and lots of other smart folks have written about, it has focused on, on turning the home into a site of care. And you've been running some pilots, as I understand it, with seniors for roughly two years now. I'd love to hear if there are learnings from those pilots that you can share. What insights have you gained from, from that program? And for those who, aren't, who maybe aren't familiar, could you just kind of introduce the program? Yeah, absolutely. So Best Buy Health came about over the last couple of years from a series of acquisitions focused on seniors, focused on safety, security, health at home, um, and really helping people age in place. And we've had some programs in place pre-COVID and then adapted, obviously, inter-COVID to different requirements that people need. One of them is uh, ADL monitoring, so activities of daily living and how to engage in a senior in a specific way. That, I think, has been an incredible learning. How to not necessarily daily sell learning, to you said? the activities of, daily, activities of daily living. So are you using the refrigerator? Are you getting out of mm. bed? Have you flushed the toilet? Are we watching from a baseline and seeing people's trends change? And does that sort of anticipate or pretend something falling off clinically for the patient? How we now engage with seniors in that world is something that we've learned a lot about. Additionally, a senior or anyone who's a patient, they don't live in isolation. They have caregivers who are with them. And you want to include them in the equation as well. So we've learned a lot about how to take information from a senior and apply it to and give it to a caregiver as well without overwhelming them. What data do they need? How do they want to be engaged? And then how does the senior or the patient want that information to be shared with someone in their family? Other pilots that we've looked at are around social isolation and caregivers in general. So we focused on caregiving, where that burnout is present right now, where we have to make sure that the data is appropriate and where we're interacting with them in the right way. And then social isolation, as Marcus alluded to, has really spiked during COVID. And how do we create new programs where we reach out to people, seniors or non-seniors, and provide sort of a listening ear or a voice? And that has had really high uptake. And these programs work really well, both in Medicare programs, in managed Medicaid programs, and then for direct-to-consumer as well. People want to know that their loved ones are well taken care of. So when it comes to those, you know, you said you were gathering lots of data from to see whether seniors were doing things like eating regularly, how their sleep was. How do you gather insights on those kinds of things? My understanding is there might be some sensors involved. Can you tell our audience a little bit more about that? Yeah, so there's certainly technology that can be placed into the home. And one of the great parts about Best Buy is that you already let us into your home. You already trust us to come into your home. You already trust us to install technology, install a refrigerator, help set up smart homes. And that smart home ports pretty easily into a tech-enabled healthcare environment. And so whether those are sensors that monitor how often someone opens their refrigerator or actually sensors that collect clinical data on someone over time, that environment is ripe for care to be delivered. 
And we really believe that, yeah, there are people who do want to go into the clinic and have that human interaction, but that interaction can also be done virtually with a combination of tech and touch and empathy that might be delivered in a way that wasn't delivered pre-COVID. Got it. Yeah, it sounds like trust is a really big component of that, which is a topic we'll be returning to later. So, Jessa, the Cox Communications that I'm familiar with is a cable company. So what are you doing in healthcare? Thanks, Aaron. Good question. What in the world is a cable operator doing in healthcare? Well, more than cable these days, we're a connectivity company. We deliver the internet into people's homes, into retail stores, into doctor's offices, into hospitals, and pretty much most other physical locations you can imagine in the, in the communities we serve. And we have highly skilled field forces who are out in these environments every day delivering connectivity and other services to those customers and many of those customers with whom we have long-term relationships. And so what does that allow us to do in healthcare? Well, I think that the first thing is we believe that fast, reliable, secure connectivity is fundamental to unlocking the digital transformation in healthcare. And so We want to make sure we are supporting that through innovations in our core services. But also, as you've heard from my two fellow panelists, we also believe that care is changing in the locations in which it's delivered, whether that's digital delivery or in nodes of care that are at the edge of that healthcare delivery network. And for us, also totally agree with Daniel, then home is the one that we're also focused on principally. And there, you know, just because we know that all the endpoints of care are going to change given this transformation, and we are in most of these physical environments today, from the hospital to the home, we believe we have unique assets that can help support this transformation. Got it. Yeah, that communication, that connection aspect of this is so important. I hear you know, a lot of times the phrase getting thrown around that virtual care is the great equalizer, but a lot of Americans still don't have access to a basic connection. So I'm really glad to, to hear that. I did a little digging into Cox, and it looks like you started making some moves into healthcare as early as 2015. Can you share any of the insights you've gained from that process or any results? Yeah, sure. And actually, I think we've been in healthcare a lot longer than that. You know, in our core business, healthcare forms more than 10% of our commercial revenues today. So it's already a big business for us. But actually, in 2015, we started to do more in this space. We started actually with a company called RapidScale, which actually supports the digital transformation of health systems and other healthcare providers by helping them move uh, safely and securely to the cloud. We acquired a company called Tripalo, which is a leader in remote health monitoring. And through Tripalo, we are thrilled to serve and deliver health monitoring services to some of healthcare's most trusted brands, so Mayo, Kaiser, Humana. We also have a direct-to-consumer offering in aging in place called Cox Home Life Care, So a lot of the same dynamics that Daniel described. We also have a virtual visit telehealth platform called Simply MD, and we've rolled that out across all our markets, and we're seeing great success there. And then finally, in the hospital environment, we are also about to launch a new smart hospital platform, which is really about helping hospitals with uh, operational asset tracking and improving patient throughput and experience through IoT-driven location services. So a lot going on, and we're actively looking for opportunities to do more. Oh, then. Sounds like there's a lot going on. Okay, so let's move on and do some group questions. I think everyone has a nice feel for who each of you are. 
And now that we're familiar, let's just dive right in. So walk us through the journey that someone takes who is walking into this front door that we mentioned earlier. Say I've got a health issue. How and why would I come to you, one of you, instead of my PCP? Perhaps, Daniel, you can start us off. Yeah, let's be honest. You wouldn't. You wouldn't actually go to any of us. And I think that's that's the first problem, which is healthcare has and will be technology-driven uh, in the future. But there's no place to go for that. There's nowhere that is trusted as the technology output or tech pharmacy type orientated company. And that trust isn't there yet. That brand might not be there yet. I, as a physician, frequently tell patients, you have atrial fibrillation, it's new. You know, here are a couple of devices you could think about getting. I don't tell them where to go. I certainly don't cross any conflict boundaries, but nobody thinks yet about going to Best Buy or a Walmart or anywhere for technology to help them with their healthcare. And so we actually have to create that front door. And it's not just about the product that you need, the glucometer, the heart rate monitor, the blood pressure cuff. It's about all of the services and solutions that wrap around someone with a chronic health condition. And I'll give you my own example just briefly, which is I'm a wheelchair user. I had a spinal cord injury. And yeah, I need a blood pressure cuff, but my life actually gets better with smart lighting and a smart home and all of these other things. Health doesn't stop with an FDA-approved device. It's what are all of the things that wrap around someone with a chronic health condition that actually improves their outcomes and their quality of life. That's what the front door needs to look like, end-to-end solutions. Great point. So, Jatta, do you want to dive in? I agree with a lot of that. And I actually think about we're not trying to reinvent the front door. Actually, I would say Cox is more about the electrical wiring in the home (laughs) rather than the front door itself and really thinking about how we make the care pathways that exist more effective and more efficient. So that's really the focus of our telehealth virtual visit platform, which is around enabling PCPs and behavioral health professionals to really have the full array of virtual visit telehealth capabilities. Or, you know, if we think about how we are enabling the home for healthcare, you know, our senior team over the years has received so many letters from customers who are asking us to add health capabilities to our connected platform. So just a couple of examples, and we're so glad that we can now support this. You know, thinking about a woman who may be caregiver to her senior mom who has dementia, how do we help them to know if the oven has been on too long or they've moved, you know, the mom has gone beyond a safe perimeter around the home or adult children who are worried about their senior parents living alone in the daily living activities that Daniel described, or parents who are managing asthma for a child and helping them understand air quality in their bedroom. So those kinds of things, kind of the the customer journey as the journey you go through your daily life, making sure that your home and your providers have the tools that they need to make sure they can manage their care in a way that puts you in the center of it. I'm going to go back to the kind of essence of your first question. Like, why would anybody choose a Cox or a Walmart or a Best Buy? Or I actually think it's actually a little more straightforward for me, which is this, you know, you look at the facts. The fundamental reality is take primary care, take the example that you're not, maybe you've got a health issue, you're not feeling well. Today, more than half of Americans have no primary care relationship of the half who do you're looking at two-thirds of them haven't been able to or have not visited that primary care physician in the last three years, can't even name them. When they try to get an appointment, they're looking at 30 to 40-day waits. We 
numbers now in the last almost 60% of Americans have said that they have deferred or delayed care because of the cost. So you not even if you could get in to see somebody, you couldn't afford it. I think the reason that we're as a group collectively, be it retailers or technology and telecommunications companies are increasingly becoming the front door is because we sort of represent, we are the antithesis to that, right? We are fundamentally about access. We are fundamentally about affordability. We are fundamentally about making the complex simple. We have, I think, so much invested in our brands as well. I think there is actually, though people might not know Best Buy or Walmart or Cox as healthcare companies, they believe us as there is a trust that exists that they know that we don't want to do things that are going to damage our own brand. And so we are more like a good housekeeping seal of approval that says these things must have been sort of vetted and true and real. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been willing to you know, put them up because you have so much at stake relative to your customer. So I actually, I think a lot of what we're seeing is, though there is this sort of perception that these kind of non-traditional brands will have a hard time convincing customers to want to engage from a health perspective, what I've actually seen from an industry perspective is, is the exact opposite, an enormous willingness because of a fundamental and deep lack of, or I guess, frustration, and in some cases, lack of trust with the way the existing system works and has has treated people. And so I think our challenge is, is, as described, is actually how do we put forward then solutions that better address those consumer needs. And so again, that's what we've seen. And I'll go back to my own sort of experience with Walmart Health. I mean, I will tell you, you know, we opened our first physical site a year ago. There's a lot of what we've done that just, it doesn't go as far as I, I would like, but we still see net promoter scores in the 70s and 80s. Right. That's Apple Store and Chick-fil-A levels and significantly higher than traditional kind of healthcare providers and, and certainly health insurers who some of them actually operate with negative net promoter scores. So I said to say, I think we actually there's a bigger opportunity there and, and customers are willing to take the chance with us because they've been so poorly served by the existing system. Got it. So. Since everyone's touched on this trust component, I want to dive into that a little bit more. I plan to get to it later in our session, but it seems really pressing. So, you know, we've all seen big tech start to disrupt healthcare. And in an article I wrote not too long ago, I said, you know, move aside big tech, retail and telecom are are coming to take your, your place. I think one of the hurdles that big tech has faced, though, is this lack of trust. A lot of people have said, at least in surveys, that they don't trust companies like Facebook and Google and Apple necessarily with their data. So I'd be curious to hear from each of you, how do you foster trust and how do you ensure people that their data will be safe for you? Marcus, would you like to start us off since you did us last time? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for us, it starts with our, I think, philosophical point, which is when you choose to engage with Walmart, if you shop with us or use a service that we offer, that data that is created is not Walmart's data. It's your data. Walmart didn't buy the milk or, you know, buy the bread or buy the T-shirt or the bike or, you know, go to the pharmacy or go to the primary care doc in our setting, you did. And so therefore it's your data. And that our sort of, our role is functionally is a very simple one. It is to protect, do what we can do to protect your data. And two, look for opportunities in which your data can be used in ways that actually make your life better, but that you get to choose. And so I think that's where we start. And so I think what we've kind of seen in one of the follies, I think, in other instances have been where organizations have believed that they know what's best for their customer. 
and so therefore can you know assume that the trust is there. And I think for us, it's the opposite: is that we assume the customer knows best, the customer guides us, and then based on that guidance, that's where we try to provide help and support. So I think some of it just actually starts with a you know what's your sort of value prop and position. And so I think at least you know what I've seen, particularly amongst the retail set, is a, just a very different kind of view around that. And that I think has, I believe, helped us have uh, see sort of greater respect and trust from the customers that we engage with. Yeah, I agree with that totally as well. And I think Marcus, you mentioned it before, also in terms of whether it's Best Buy or Walmart or Cox. You know, we're known in the communities we serve, and so they know us. We already provide you know critical services for, in our case, connectivity, and they trust us to do that, and they trust us to be in the home already. And also, you know, from a an ISP standpoint, we are dealing with massive amounts of customer data and our customers respect us to respect their privacy to, and really to be absolutely protective of the information they share with us. And we take that responsibility as an ISP super, super seriously and that commitment extends to our activities in healthcare. I'll double down. There's DNA that exists through retail and particularly if you're going to go into someone's home they embrace you and that embrace has to be two ways. And that's essential to success in moving retail into healthcare. Got it. I want to make sure we have time for questions from our audience because some good ones have come in. But really briefly, I'd just like to ask a quick business question. I'm a business reporter. I'm born and bred. So I'd love to just hear, you know, briefly, let's talk business. Marcus and Daniel, how do Walmart Health and Best Buy Health work as businesses? I mean, who pays and what generates revenue? Well, I mean, for us, at the end of the day, you know, the customer pays and the insurer pays because these are covered services that we render. And so, again, the model is predicated on our ability to to deliver a solution that customers find compelling. At the end of the day, if people show up, then their insurers will typically kind of put us in network because they actually want their members served. But in many ways, it's uh, we're operating in a kind of traditional environment where the you know the, our revenues come through cash or fee for service. I think in the future, certainly there are opportunities for us to play in the value based care space, which will change how we're paid. But yeah, I think we make money the same way other service providers do, but with one sort of caveat that we are intentionally trying to price these things and deliver services and products in a way that we're communicating to all customers that it doesn't matter whether you have insurance or not. It doesn't matter the quality of that insurance. You should still be able to get the care and the healthcare products that you need for yourself and your family. And so where we diverge a little bit, I think, is we're not really trying to get the most revenue per patient or most revenue per event. We're actually trying to see more people and do it at a lower cost per person. So scale. Got it. Daniel, how about you? Maybe 30-second answer. Yeah, we, you can do it. we certainly have foot traffic in our stores and through our .com for people who need healthcare technology. Our senior-oriented services are purchased by seniors and by their loved ones and caregivers who want improved peace of mind. Payers have Medicare Advantage plans and managed Medicaid plans where they rely on us to help address the social determinants of health with our social work teams for their patients. And then, you know, I think a lot of providers are now seeing that while they wanted to transition to virtual care and keep it there and telemedicine, that world wasn't set up for success to actually maintain that. So we've seen the regression. How do you go back to that and how do you create the environment in the home for successful virtual care? 
there's revenue to be made there as well. Got it. Great. So going to pull from an audience question from Irfan right now. I think it's a great one. Do you consider your companies as the quote unquote last mile to the patient? And if yes, what responsibilities do you feel you have towards the patient? Sujatha, maybe you can take this one. Yeah. I mean, I think we definitely consider ourselves the last mile, particularly when it comes to digital health activities, because we are delivering that connection into the home. And so, you know, back to the point we were talking about before, I really do think there is a a key piece of this, which is around security, whether that's around security of data, whether that's around security of devices or the connection itself. And so from our standpoint, we are actively looking at ways that we can make sure that our connection is available. And And then I think back to the point we were making before, virtual care, just like virtual work and virtual learning requires a good internet connection. And back to this point around access and delivering great performance, we are spending a lot of time in our communities figuring out how we improve access because all of this needs to be built on some level of digital inclusion if it's ever to succeed on the kind of scale that that we're talking about. I'd say that one a little differently that, I mean, I don't know that I would say we are the last mile to the customer, I'd actually say we are the first mile from the customer. And there's a nuance in that distinction, which is, yes, we're, it's about being the kind of, I think we are the entities who can and will directly engage consumers in their health, but it's more about, I think, the work that we can do to create new avenues for those consumers who need care to access it. And so it's about kind of I will say this, there is an enormous amount of innovation that has occurred and is occurring in healthcare, particularly on the digital side, new lab and diagnostic solutions, new imaging solutions, new care management solutions using AI. I mean, it's extraordinary. The problem today is it's to build it and they will come mentality, except they can't come because there are no pipes, or no con- there's no conduit that connects the people who need it to the people who have the offering. And so I think Part of our kind of first mile challenge, honestly, from the customer is how do we actually begin to connect customers with that innovation that can actually be transformative in their lives and fundamentally allow them to not just improve their health, but have more control over the the health and wellness of themselves and their family. Got it, Daniel? Yeah, I mean, I think Marcus's reversal there is is spot on. What what we're essentially doing is bringing care into the home and bringing it to life for someone else to deliver the care. Me, the last mile is ultimately the provider of care. And if we're making that happen, if we're creating the architecture for that actually to happen where one of my physician colleagues can actually do that, that's what the last, last mile is. Got it. We have very little time left, but I wanted to be sure we had some room for this question. You know, it's not easy to innovate in healthcare, especially when you're leading a large non-healthcare focused company into the space. So do any of you have any Battle scars, aha moments that you can share with us. Yeah, I can give you a couple right off the bat. One is, you know, I, I was new to retail, came from clinical world and insurance world and med tech before that. And the obsession with the customer that lives in retail, it does not exist in healthcare. It certainly doesn't exist mm-hmm. in the payer world where, you know, a payer centric or a, a payer is, is patient centric. Retailers understand the patient. They understand what they need. They understand when they need it. They can help them understand something they might not. And that doesn't exist in healthcare yet. And the other part I would add is the rapid transition, just turning a business around overnight to deliver in a different way, that's why I successfully did it, as did other retailers, is again, something that healthcare with a, a relatively 
staid culture might not do. And that, those have just been fantastic to see. And then how do you apply that to healthcare? All right. We might only yeah, I'd, say, I'd say there are enormous battle scars. And I'd say, I just echoed Daniel's point, particularly coming from a retail perspective. Yes, I could, you could do a 40-hour session on those battle scars you want. I think the biggest, honestly, is exactly where you've gone. Retailers, we have a very simple view. Like It is all about the customer. In healthcare, unfortunately, a lot of times, the dialogue and discussion ends up being about other entities and their needs being equal to or greater than that of the customer or the patient. So the payer, the provider or health system, even pharma and device manufacturers. And, and so I think at times that's where a lot of battle scars have been on our end of just trying to help an old, old retailer understand why do those other groups matter or do they matter? And what have you found? What's the answer? I don't think they matter, but they exist, meaning their interests are not equal to that of the customer. I think that's one of the challenges is that it's not a balanced interest reality. It's a singular interest. What are we doing for the patient? What are we doing for the customer? They are all there to serve. And I think that's part of the problem is that we we're operating under a sort of wrong design approach. Got it. All right. We are unfortunately out of time, so I'm going to wrap it up with that. I really appreciate all of you taking the time to join me for this session, all of our audience members for some really smart questions, and um, each of you. It was a a pleasure. To stay up to date with the latest in digital health, check out our resources and sign up for the Rock Weekly newsletter at rockhealth.com.